that little blank things out and then all right so you have been uh, doing a bit of, of practice and meditation other places and so um what i would like to do is to introduce anapanasati uh in a way that uh, kind of encompasses all of the other teachings, because I too have done Goenka retreats, though it was many, many years ago, 1980, 81, that time frame. Uh, and I've also done Mahasi, and that uh, I know Bila Maramsi, and so I know all of the various standard teachings and whatnot. Uh, but I still uh, choose to uh, teach out of the Anapanasati Sutta because it's more complete in the sense of a full practice. Uh, and so basically we practice uh, the Dhamma and the Dhamma is the Dhamma of the Buddha and that uh, we can uh, bring together the Dhamma into a nice, neat little package so that we can understand it quite easily. And the full teaching of the Dhamma can be said in just two words, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda actually means that there is, in fact, dissatisfaction in the world that when you see it, you can bring it to an end right then and there. That's different from the way that many other teachings have in the sense that you've got to build up a whole bunch of skills as well as put in the hours. And then after 30,000 hours of some intense, serious practice, then the good old comma machine is going to come floating into the room, hit you in the head with Shakti pot, and then you'll feel happy. That's the way that a lot of people practice, thinking that I've got to put in the time before I can get the benefit. By doing it that way, they put in all the time and they don't get much benefit. It's only when they change their frame of reference from being a serious meditation teacher or student into practicing correctly. And the practicing correctly has to do with see the dukkha right now, see the unsatisfactoriness, see the unwholesome state, see the unwholesome thoughts or the hindrances as they are right now, and then throw them out right now, and then congratulate yourself for having thrown them out right now so that we can be satisfied and content right now. This is the real teaching of the Buddha. And he called himself, in fact, uh, he did not call himself Buddha, and no one refers to him as Gautama or Siddhartha or uh, of the Sakyans or any of that. But what he called himself was Tathagatha. Have you ever heard that word before? Do you know what it means? Awakened one? No. It oh. means the one who is here now. Oh. Tathagatha is thusness or thisness or right here nowness and tata and tatagata is the one who has come to the here now uh, in ancient translations it's translated as the thus gone one okay thus gone one 
is exactly correctly translation that doesn't mean anything to anybody. But when you see the word thus means this or this present moment, and the one who comes to this present moment means that he's come out of the past, he's come out of the future, he's come out of the hindrances, he's come out of the unwholesomeness and coming into the way things are right here, right now. So this is the way that we look at it from the beginning uh, as a frame of reference, that what benefit you're going to get from meditation, you're going to get it right now. If you don't get it right now, it's not going to happen at a later time. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're a failure now and you're setting up failure right now and continue with failure, you're likely going to continue on and on in failure. So something has to make a big change. And once we've made some big change, and we can turn around and we can get some success right now, then we'll feel good. And so we can start gaining more success and more and more and more. And that will build confidence or shraddha leading us into a state of can do attitude. Okay. Because we're practicing correctly. And so this is the point that uh, in, in the talks with um, uh, Santicaro, he probably somewhere along the line did mention about gladdening the mind, which is a major point that most teachers don't talk about much. Gladdening the mind. Another way of talking about it is brightening the mind or bringing the mind out of the junk. You just saw it in. Mm -hmm. To throw the hindrances out. Now, the Buddha had a phrase for that, and the phrase that the Buddha used was, Aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see what's going on. And by seeing the Mara, we actually separate ourselves from it. In other words, when we are asleep or when we're stuck in defilements, when we're in hindrance, we think we are the hindrance. And so we can say, I, I am smart or I am dumb, we can say I am angry, I am uh, sick, I am tired, I am um, uh, frustrated. These are the words I am, which actually set us up to be that anger, if I am angry. But this aha, I see you, Myra, is like aha, this is the situation. I'm, this is the anger, this is me. And the anger's got me. I am the anger. It's un I, I'm under con its control. The anger is me. But when we wake up, the waking up is, aha, I see you, Myra. I am not that anger. This is the point that we can say, because if I am not that anger, then I can deal with it. But if that anger is me, if I am angry, then what can I do? We're stuck, no place to go. The same thing can be said, not just with anger, but with any state that the mind can get into that we would define it as. And we normally group the whole group together in, in the form of hindrances. That's the word that we use. Uh, we can also call it obstructions. Now, why would we call them hindrances? 
We call them hindrances because they hinder us in this present moment from being joyful and happy right here in this present moment, right now. That's why they're called hindrances, which means if we can throw those hindrances out of the mind, then we have no hindrances right now, and we are free to enjoy the present moment. So anything that would hinder us would be something that we would not want to have. But in fact, upon our investigation, we begin to investigate to see what is hindrance and what is not. The Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa made a big point that we're not always in dukkha. We're not always in uh, selfishness. We're not always in hindrance. But in fact, the few people who are in hindrance all the time generally have an early grave. They get sick and they die. They want too much. And so they want and they want and they want. And while they're alive, they're not happy. Only when we become contented and satisfied do we allow ourselves to be happy when there's no job to do. And so we need to find a way of getting the mind into that state, the state of freedom from suffering, freedom from dukkha. And the way that we do that is by seeing it for what it is. In order to do that, we have to wake up. So we're actually talking about the Eightfold Noble Path primarily here in the sense of uh, the investigation is one's right view. One's wrong view is to, is to have seen it and thought we knew, and so we don't have to look again. That's one's wrong view. Another way of talking about wrong view is an, a, an existential life view. The wrong view is I can get away with it. I can get away with whatever I want to do. I'm not going to get caught. An ordinary right view has the quality of Oh, you, oh no, you will get caught. You will eventually have to pay the piper. But a lot of the teenagers going around saying, oh no, I did what I broke into that bank and I didn't get caught. I can get away with it. Some of us get to the point of thinking that they can get away with anything. Right now, the <laughs> Donald Trump is trying to steal the United States government because he thinks he can get away with it. So, that's wrong view. Right view is to think that all we do understand and we know. But noble right view is that we continue to investigate. We don't come to conclusions. We keep watching. We keep noting. We keep investigating. So, this is one's right view. We'll talk much more about it later. The next one, which is the big one, is sati. We have sati here, sati there, satipatthana, anapanasati, uh, right noble sati in the uh, Eightfold Noble Path, and also unremitting sati in the uh, seven uh, factors of awakening, the sambhojana. So uh, sati is the important one. You could go so far as to say that whatever skills you develop, you will not apply those skills unless you remember to apply them. 
When you understand sati that way, then you'll understand the power of sati is to wake up to what's going on. To wake up is what we mean by sati. Now, a lot of, uh, because of Western translations, use the word mindfulness. This is not really what we're doing because mindfulness doesn't have uh, the real quality of wake up to see what you've done wrong, to wake up and to see this dukkha, to wake up and to notice, aha, I see you, Myra, to wake up and literally do an investigation. An example of that idea of mindfulness would be like mind your P's and Q's, but if the student uh, who is learning the alphabet doesn't wake up to what a P and what a Q is, then he will get them backwards. I just saw that recently that the child seven-year-old is writing a cue in September. No cues in September. There's a P. And so that that is the, uh, the quality, though, is that we have to wake up to our spelling. We have to do an investigation of the spelling. This is really what we're talking about, not uh, an idle kind of mindfulness. This is powerful stuff. And it also has the quality of uh, right effort. Now, when I use the word effort, I'm talking about it in the sense of what is right noble effort is the least amount of possible effort in order to get the job done. Most people don't put in the right effort. They'll either put in too much effort, they'll struggle, they'll get all serious in everything, or they will uh, not practice hard enough. They'll just let it go. This is called choiceless awareness. Perhaps you've heard of that term. It's a meditation technique. It doesn't matter how bad you feel so long as you're watching it. And that's not what we're practicing here. We're practicing, hey, wake up to the fact that you're feeling bad and change it. That's one's right effort is to make that change. And the way that we do it is with that, aha, I see you, Myra. And so that's the gladdening of the mind. And that gladdening of the mind, by the way, has already thrown out the misery thoughts. That we woke, woke up, we saw what they were, we throw them out, and boy, am I glad that stuff is gone. An example would be that we have a, um, an internal dialogue with Aunt Susie, whom we just had an argument with. Though she's slammed her phone down and don't want to talk to us anymore, now we're still talking to the Susie, Aunt Susie in our mind, right? Just grinding on and on. Boy, I got a few things I'm going to tell her. And then it's time for meditation, so we sit down on the floor and do our meditation for that time, and it's still Aunt Susie's grinding on. And Aunt Susie and talking to Aunt Susie were planning on the future to have a future conversation with Aunt Susie. And boy, am I going to tell her a bunch of stuff. Except that when we actually talk to her, when I tell her a little bit, we go off in another direction. I never do bother to remember to tell her the stuff that I was thinking about while I was in meditation. But the important thing while I was in meditation was that I wasn't meditating at all. And I was getting no benefit out of it because I was not mindful or not uh, awake enough to wake up to see that thinking about Aunt Susie right now is 
uncomfortable, unpleasant, unwholesome, and unsatisfying. It's unsatisfactory. But we think we're going to have satisfaction someday if we could only get Aunt Susie to agree with me. <laughs> Not going to happen. <laughs> but it will in our mind. So we keep talking to her, hoping that the, the Susie out there is going to agree the way that the Susie in our mind agrees. And it doesn't work that way. And so we wind up in, in suffering when we're in a, the argument with her in suffering when we ought to be happy in meditation and we're suffering because we're thinking about her and then later when we're with Susie we're still not satisfied and so we go from dukkha to dukkha to dukkha when are we going to wake up the answer is when I remember to wake up when I understand that the whole practice of of the sitting is to wake up to be here now to be in this present moment, to take the effort that it takes to throw that stuff out of the mind. Okay, so the next aspect of right effort then is the effort that it takes to start taking some deep breaths. This is Anapanasati, and there is the long deep breath, and that we have two points of sati with each breath. One is to know that this is a long in-breath. And then the next one is to note and to know that this is a long out breath. So there's two points of sati in every breath. If we're practicing correctly, that will help generate that that issue of sati. That keeps coming back and coming back and coming back because we're practicing bringing it back up. Twice with each long breath, which Basically, a long breath, we could say, uh, just as an example, would be about 10 to 12 seconds, which means every five seconds, we're going to wake up. We're going to have sati. Taking on an in-breath, long, deep in-breath, and a long, deep out-breath. One of the ways of uh, judging this, though I wouldn't recommend that you talk, that you do it all the time, but when you first sit down, you can get into the long rhythmic breath by counting up to five, like five seconds on an in-breath, five seconds on an out-breath, and two seconds between the in-breath, or between the out-breath and the next in-breath. So that's down to 12. That's five breaths a minute. Normally, people breathe at about 20 breaths a minute, which is four times the speed. So we start off in our practice at a quarter of the speed, and then we will let it go even slower as time goes, maybe down to eight, eight, and four. Eight, count of eight on the in-breath, count of eight on the out-breath, and the count of four between the out-breath and the in-breath, that's up to now the count of 20, and that would be, if that was a second with each, with each count, would be down to three breaths a minute. So this is just giving you an idea about how to bring your breath down. Now, a lot of places don't talk too much about that. You've got to make sure that you're actually breathing long and deep. They say, oh, you just watch the breath. Well, no, we actually, like the Buddha says, we've got to tether the mind to the breath, which means that we've got to actually actively control the breath, that if we just kind of watch it ho-hum, then the mind will easily just wander away from it because it's got no investment in it other than just to observe. But if we're bringing it up sati so that I remember to take a long, deep breath and remember to take a long, deep out uh, breath, 
then that will help pin the mind and help settle the mind down. An example would be the tusker elephant that the king sends the trainer out to get a, a wild tusker. And what do they do with him? They, they, uh, uh, they tether the elephant. One of the ways that they tether the elephant is with the neck. In fact, they can get a wild elephant to go along with the king's uh, tamed tusker by tethering them neck to neck. And so the, uh, the tamer is riding the tamed elephant, but the wild elephant has to go along with it. Another way that they do it is by uh, tethering uh, uh, the wild elephant to a stake. And we want to think about doing that too. Another example would be a horse that you would put a bridle on and then tie that bridle to the fence post. And now the horse has to stay there especially if the bridle has a bit. If you know horse training, then you know what I'm talking about. The bit's that piece of metal that when the horse pulls, when, that, when the harness pulls, that bit goes right into the top of the roof of the horse's mouth. And he does not like that, so he will stop pulling on that uh, uh, harness. This is the way that they train the animals, and this is the way that the Buddha recommends that we train the mind, is by tethering the mind to this object of the breath. Well, guess what about the breath? When we're tethering the mind to the breath, we're actually tethering the mind in a way to the present moment. That we can't tether the mind to a, a breath we had last year or one we hope to have in the future someday. We can only tether it to the breathing that we're having right now. So by tethering the mind to the breathing, this is one's right effort. And that right effort is the effort that comes about in the, in the phrase of comma that brings an end to comma, which means actions that will bring actions to an end. Very easy way of understanding that is, is that if the cops want to set up a roadblock, or the army does, they put a strip of nails right across the road, or they may block the road with uh, uh, their vehicles or something like that. And so that blocking the road then is an action that will lead to all of the traffic has to stop. So we're going to be using actions too. The actions that we use are the actions that come to the end of action. And in this regard, the actions that we're going to bring an end to is the wandering mind by tethering the mind to keeping track of the breathing. Also, during that long in and out breath, that's about 12 seconds, say, to begin with, there's a lot of time in there to do other things, including skill building. And so, uh, actually, you probably heard Anapanasati has 16 steps. There are four steps for um, the body four for the feelings, four for the mind, and four for the mind objects. And automatically we start doing a lot of those things. Now, a lot of students think that Anapanasati has to be practiced in order. What order? The order that is in the sutta, the order that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uses, which is that same ordering, but that order is set up about the Satipatthana in the sense of body comes first, the biggest, heaviest thing, then feelings, then the mind, 
is fire, and then the air is the mind's objects, the Dhamma. So, this is the way that it's stated down only in the sense of explanation. That's not the way that it's to be practiced. Clear example is when you go into the meditation hall, you can't just bring the body in and leave the mind and the, and the feelings and the thoughts in the bed. you got to bring the whole show in. Next week, you can't just bring the mind in and leave the body and the feelings in bed. The week after that, you can't just bring the feelings into the meditation hall and leave the body and the mind in the bed. We can't do it that way. We have to do it integrated. So it's more complicated than just the order of body, feelings, mind, and mind objects. We've got to do it almost all at once. Okay. When does it start then? It starts with sati, to wake up, to recognize it's time to do an investigation. That waking up and investigation is actually listed as step nine of Anapanasati because it's the first item on the list of the mind and that's the first thing we do is we wake up the mind and uh, enough to say i see what's going on and the mind has wandered away it's off in <laughs> elephant land did you, where the animal uh the, the the wild and so we want to bring the mind back to the tether of the breath and so the first thing is, is aha i can see that the mind has wandered away from the breath Never mind, let's start again. And so that's two aspects of one's right effort. The right effort of uh, throwing the hindrances out and gladdening the mind. And the other effort is the effort to uh, start watching and, and putting the breath to be long, slow in and long, slow out. So that's right effort. Once we do that, it's also the, the same as aha, I see you, Myra, or gladdening the mind means that we start having intentionally having wholesome thoughts. We're no longer going to allow in this moment, we're not in this moment going to allow unwholesome thoughts. What is unwholesome? The kind of thoughts that we would uh, make us unhappy now. Let's have thoughts, wholesome thoughts that are going to increase our joy and our happiness. Thoughts about this is a nice day. Thoughts about, aha, I'm glad that I don't have to think about my argument with Aunt Susie. Aha, I feel good now. And so these are the kind of good thoughts that we will have that when working with those good thoughts will then begin to promote good feelings. That there is a major connection between body and feelings, or uh, yes, and also between feelings and the mind. So that the state of mind we're in will influence how we feel. And how we feel will in, um, affect how we think. There are many instances in many different games, whether it's chess and martial arts or whatever, that if you can get your opponent in that game frustrated, angry, and upset, then he will be diminished in his ability to play that game. This is why ad hominem attacks are not allowed in debates, because if I can make my enemy unhappy and angry because I told him that his mom was a twerp and she didn't know how to do debating anyway, 
then he will start thinking about what I've said to him wrong. He'll get upset about that, and then he will not have an excellent performance in his uh, uh, debate. So these are many examples of that, that the, that the mind influences our feeling, and our feelings influence the mind. If we can talk ourselves into feeling good, then that proves it, because we've been talking ourselves into feeling bad all these years. Mm. And so it's time to start talking ourselves into feeling good, huh? How, when are we going to do that? When we remember. Okay, so if we get into the habit of, or just do, starting to develop the habit of feeling good, then we know that when the mind gets hindered, that I can wake up and I can throw that stuff out. And then later, I wake up and I recognize mind is hindered again, throw that stuff out. By doing that, we begin to have success. We have confidence. We begin to believe that we can do it. I mean, I just did it then, I can do it again later. And eventually, we come to the position of, no, it doesn't matter how much the mind gets hindered, doesn't matter how it's obstructed, I can, in fact, clean the mind out and come to the here now and enjoy this moment. So that's an important point. That's a milestone. That, in fact, is uh, uh, the first step of the noble path. The first knowledge is that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, I can clean it out. Now, basically, what we're talking about is attitude. We're no longer holding the attitude of a loser or the attitude of the victim of, uh, and, the ad, and the victim is the one who will say, oh, when the mind wanders away from, from the breath, that just proves that my mind is not sharp. That just, you know, this meditation is hard. That's what the losers will say. They don't have the right attitude. But as we develop, our practice, we know that we can do it. Then we begin to develop the attitude of the winner. I can do this. No matter what, I can, in fact, get the mind cleaned out and feel really good about it. I can talk myself into feeling good. I can have wholesome thoughts. And so this is the attitude. Well, th this is all part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Right view. Right sati to wake up to remember, right um, effort, the effort to gladden the mind and the effort to come back and take the deep breath. And then the next one is the right attitude. I can do this. I'm successful. That no matter what, I will be able to throw out the junk out of my mind and come back to a happy state. So if we... Uh, practice this way, we're actually practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, but we're also practicing Anapanasati with many, many different features. That in fact, the waking up is generally to do with change. Now, I'll talk about change in the Nietzsche a little bit later, but right now we have to understand that something in fact did change. I woke up, something changed in the mind. First, I was in hindrance. And the mind was wandering around, and that was a kind of change on its own. But now we've woken up. Now things are new. 
something changed. And what is it that changed? The wake up. So before I was in hindrance. Now I'm on the path. I'm on the Buddhist path. And that path is to wake up, to do the investigation, to take the right effort, gladden the mind, and to take the deep breathing. And that will help wake up the, uh, the situation so that now even tiredness and slaughter, the hindrance of, of, of uh, being tired and sleepy with taking deep breaths and doing some other things we'll talk about later, will help get the, uh, the hindrance of sleepiness out. So now that we've gotten those things out of the mind, the hindrances, we can, in fact, enjoy the moment. That's what the Dhamma is really all about, is coming to the here now and being in the, in the here now, free from all the past, free from suffering, free from dukkha, free from everything, and just being okay, as they say in Thailand, sabai, sabai. Just everything is cool. Everything is good. And soon enough, you'll forget about that. The hindrances will rise again, and off the mind wanders away. So the first skill that we need to develop in this regard is the ability to bring these skill factors together very quickly to get our mind out of hindrance and into a good state. If we're getting very good at it, we can do it within one or two breaths. Just one or two breaths, and I'm back again. That's all it takes. And this is the practice that needs to be done over and over and over again. Why? Because of the habits. Yeah. Yeah, we have spent our whole lifetimes telling ourselves what a loser and how hard things are and maybe someday and I want it and I don't have it and poor me and pity parties and anger and frustrations and all of that stuff we've been doing all of these years. And so we have the habit built up and we tend to continue to do that. So we have to have sati to wake up and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to be in a nice state. Mm-hmm. This does not have to be practiced while we're in sitting meditation. But in fact, the sitting meditation is only to get the mind in seclusion so that we're only having to deal with the crap that we have in the mind right now. Let's not deal with the world yet because we already know that we're unsuccessful at dealing with the world because look what I've done with the world. I've made a big mess of it. So let's start throwing the world out. This is why we go to retreats, is to get away from the world. Mm -hmm. Except that the students bring the world with them anyway. The meditation retreat places, they try to help by saying, okay, well, you can't bring a few world things in. You can't bring a cell phone. You can't bring your laptop. You can't bring uh, books and, and note paper and whatnot like that for passing notes with each other. So you just come as you are. But still, the student will bring a whole bunch of the worldly stuff in there with them. How do they get away with it? Because they've got it stored in the mind. Whether where the, uh, uh, the volunteers at the retreat center, they can't see, but they know. They know because they've got a bunch of crap, too. And so we bring that crap 
into the meditation room, but at least that's the only crap we've got right now. That really Aunt Susie is not here, so we don't have to deal with her. And so we should make sure that we don't have to deal with her. Any thoughts of Aunt Susie that comes up, out they go. Let's be here now. Let's begin to enjoy the, the setting, the meditation. Once we gain some skill at doing that, then we can begin to put those things to work in the world. And so it's basically a two-step process. A lot of people think that meditation is all about squatting on the floor, all Asian style and everything. Mm -hmm. Okay. But Anapanasati is not that. Anapanasati is mindfulness of breathing with not every breath. You're not going to do it with every breath. But generally they say that uh, at 20 breaths a minute, the average human being will breathe 14,000 times a day. The question is, how many of them are you going to be mindful of? How many of those breaths are going to be long and slow and deep and calm and easygoing? Can I just say that my battery's about to die, so I will disappear. I apologies. <laughs> All right. Well, Sorry. Uh, we're, we're about finished now. Okay, uh, okay. And so this would be uh, possibly a, a good place to stop. Okay. Uh, and so... Um, I think that you're beginning to get the idea. Yeah, when the yeah, battery yeah. is good, give me another call and we'll continue. Okay, okay. thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Sorry for the interruption. Apologies. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <clears throat> All right. Okay. So, let's so go ahead and uh, cut this video off. Finish this one. Stop recording.